This is Digital Communicators, the comms focus show for the tech sector. Hi, this is Simon from Babel. This podcast is a recording of our Cybersecurity 2023 webinar with special guests Katrina Manson and Kieran Martin. You can also view the webinar on our website at babelpr.com. Enjoy. Good afternoon and welcome to the latest Babel webinar. My name is Simon Coughlin. I'm a director at Babel. We are London-based B2B tech PR agency. We work with clients across multiple different technology sectors, including cybersecurity. And I'm pleased to see many of those on the call with us today. First of all, Happy New Year to everyone. I'd like to thank you all for joining us. I'd like to welcome our two panellists. Kieran Martin CB was the first chief executive of the UK National Cybersecurity Centre. In September 2020, he was appointed Professor of Practice in the Management of Public Organisations at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. Katrina Manson is based on the east coast of the US and covers cybersecurity and emerging technology for Bloomberg News. She has a particular focus on national security. She was previously US foreign policy and defense correspondent at the Financial Times. Many thanks to Kieran and Katrina for joining us today. So as you're all aware, today's conversation is focused on one of my favorite technology subjects, cybersecurity. Last year, 2022, was another year in which issues relating to cybersecurity dominated the global news. Enterprises faced a number of new threats from cyber criminals, nation state actors and insiders, forcing them to constantly reassess and reinforce their defences. The focus of today's discussion will be to examine the current threat landscape as it relates to organisations. We will also look at the financial pressures facing business leaders and how the recession will impact on their security strategies throughout the course of the coming months. We will also turn to Katrina to provide insights on the type of security story she is currently focusing on and how security firms can harness their data and insights to inform her reporting. Let's kick off by looking at one of the biggest geopolitical issues of recent months, the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Following the invasion last February, the UK NCFC called on UK organisations to bolster their online defences. According to the European Union Agency for Cybersecurity, the conflict has resulted in an increase in hacktivist activity, with state-sponsored threat actors targeting 128 governmental organisations in 42 countries that have supported Ukraine in recent months. So the first question, the panelists. In your view, has the conflict involved as much cybersecurity-related tactics as had been predicted by many observers? And has the conflict led to increased threats to organisations outside of the region? Perhaps we can turn to Kieran for your view on that. Thanks, Simon. Happy New Year, everybody. Thanks for joining. Thanks to Katrina for joining as well. The broad answer to your second question about heightened risk to companies that might be joining this call to companies in the UK, in the US, in Western Europe, is I think nearly a year after the invasion, you can call this, is broadly and perhaps surprisingly no. Um, the, the situation around cyber and the Russia-Ukraine war is very, very complicated. It's um, clouded by the fog of war inevitably. It's very hard to get ground truth. But Bluntly speaking, and I think it's important to make this division, there are two different things happening. There is a very intense, um, highly contested cyber dimension aspect to the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, between those two states, and between, as you alluded to, some people on both sides who are not under the orders of either state directly, but are chipping in in one way or another mostly ineffectively in my in 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 my view um but um nonetheless part of that cyber conflict and we can talk about that a little bit later the the thing that really is quite striking is if you look back to mid-february when people started to see an invasion as inevitable late february when it happened early march when it was beginning there was a lot of uh, well-informed speculation i would say well-informed because i was part of it and you mentioned governments 
the agency I used to head, its counterparts in the US and in Europe and so forth, saying that we should be on heightened alert. And that was absolutely right and justified in the circumstances at the time. But 10, 11 months on, what has not happened is a sustained campaign of Russian aggression in cyberspace against the West. Now, we can talk about why that might be. I'm conscious that I don't want to spend, you could spend the whole hour on this, debating whether or not I'm right and if I am, what the reasons are for. But just in terms of risk assessments for UK companies, for American companies, for Western European companies, for whatever reason, there has not been an intensification of Russian state activity against Western targets. We've had a lot of trouble from Russia in the last one, two Argue somebody might even say three decades in cyberspace. 2022 was no better or no worse uh, than that. Um, so that is important. I think there are two things on either side of that argument that are important to register. One I've already said, there has been an intense conflict between Russia and Ukraine in, in, in cyberspace. Again, experts will reasonably differ as to how important that's been to the overall outcome of the conflict uh, itself. And then there's been a series um, preceding the war, a series of very damaging uh, cyber activity from within Russia, but not directed by the state, the organized cyber criminal gangs, mostly in the summer of 2021, which highlighted huge weaknesses in Western cybersecurity defenses. Now, just because the motivation was money, because it was all ransomware, uh, doesn't negate the fact that it was deeply concerning. It disrupted healthcare, food distribution, food production, uh, schooling, all sorts of different uh, things. So there is plenty of uh, there are plenty of cyber risks to be worried um, about out there. Even if for uh, countries for companies based in countries that are not directly competent in the conflict, which the UK isn't, it supports Ukraine very strongly, but it is not a competent in this uh, fight directly, uh, nor is any other uh, NATO uh, uh, country. That that is the cyber war that hasn't really happened. Uh, Katrina, over to you. Well, I think it's interesting to figure out which question we're answering, really, because obviously at the beginning, there were a, a, a lot of the narrative about how uh, significant a factor cyber had been in the war. The aim was very much saying it, it, this claim is overblown. Cyber hasn't played as, a, a, a much a role as um, some people might have expected. And then I think you saw senior leaders in the US, including Cyber Command um, and UK, saying, well, hold on, we've gone too far in this narrative. Cyber is playing a very significant role. And um, to some extent, I think Kieran's absolutely right that it, it, it's very hard to know everything that is happening in Ukraine. It's filtered through so many different um, uh, uh, viewpoints and activities. And one thing we've got is the Microsoft report that said that at least 50 Ukrainian agencies, government agencies, enterprises were attacked in the first um, four months. Um, obviously, the bias that hack was significant. That was aimed against uh, the West. And I think as more and more people have looked at satellite vulnerabilities, the sense of how vulnerable some aspects of um, Western infrastructure are has come further to light. And it's also enabled other um, cybersecurity experts to, 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 to point to other um, interventions that have happened in the past. Um, in the past year, uh, SISA has explained, SISA researcher has explained that the Russians have targeted satellite um, service providers in the US. So I, I think we're, we're learning more all the time. Those big briefings, those hurried US briefings that happened, classified briefings to energy providers right at the start of the war, raising those risks that Kieran was talking about. Um, that pace has absolutely, I think, slowed down but the vulnerabilities everyone is very aware about and of course as Kieran says um, you can debate why Russia hasn't done it but when I speak to people this side of, of the pond as it were a lot of them point to Russia has decided not to target the West for quote-unquote whatever reason. Now some people claim that's um, a success for deterrence, some people claim more for diplomacy, obviously NATO started leaning into the idea that Article 5 could be triggered in the event of a cyber attack um, you had Biden meeting Putin um, the year before the war, saying that he was setting a cyber red line, um, leave off our critical infrastructure sectors. Uh, that was after ransomware attacks on critical infrastructure that um, I think the US clearly thought the Russian state was, if not directly involved, then was creating a very supportive environment for those ransomware groups. Uh, so 
the, 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 the vulnerabilities have been exposed, I think, by the war and uh, Western governments have been acting on it. In Ukraine itself, I mean, it's constant. You're seeing uh, missile strikes that the Russians are attributing to geolocation on cell phones. Uh, this is a cyber-enabled war. I think for people who study um, military strategy and tactics, war has changed. You have Microsoft saying, what do they call it, a dawn of a new age of conflict. You know, so there's a lot of grand language about exactly the way um, the cloud is, is is playing a role in war, and I think the US certainly is taking a, a lot of notes from that and it and its and its role currently. Thanks, Katrina. Um, just to move slightly away from the Ukraine-Russia situation, um, attacks elsewhere. Uh, we've seen continued attacks uh, globally on critical national infrastructure. Uh, a recent report from Microsoft suggests that attacks targeting CNI institutions have leapt from comprising 20% of all nation state attacks to 40%. So it's clearly an ongoing concern for energy companies and the like. Uh, Katrina, what's been your experience of how CNI, CNI attacks have evolved in recent months? Well, I spent a, a fair bit of time looking at that graph to try and really unpack it. And I think what Microsoft is saying is that these are their nation state notifications. Um, so that's when they tell a customer of theirs that um, a nation state is behind targeting them or compromising them. So when you come to destructive attacks, I think the picture is much less clear. And the, the things that actually are, is we, you know, we saw civilians queuing for gas in the US because of colonial pipeline, because meat processing got disrupted. That simply hasn't happened in the past year. Um, so a lot of this is probing, scanning, targeting, um, a little bit of diplomacy, a little bit of tit for tat diplomacy. One of the things that Microsoft um, really brings out in their nation state threat report is uh, Iran becoming a bigger player in the ransomware um, sector, using tactics similar to, to Russia. Um, and of course, you know, the role of the, of the, of the state is, is um, sometimes nebulous, but they are certainly making the claim that Iran as a state is involved in, in this. And, and they say that Iran has been targeting um, US seaports, airports, oil and gas, utility companies, and that's in terms of probes. It came after um, Iran had assessed that it had been subject to, to, to similar probes targeting from Israel and the US, um, or Israel, and certainly um, as you watch the collapse of, of any hope to get the JCPOA, the, the um, nuclear agreement, back on track, um, I, I think what's interesting is you're seeing diplomacy play out in sort of cyber tactics. Whether Iran goes on to actually operationalize the targeting that it's doing and do anything to a US oil and gas company would be a huge, huge step. And it's already been noticed. So I, I think some of this is um, essentially a new form of diplomatic messaging. Kieran, anything to add on that? Not a great deal. I mean, a bit of colour um, to, I think Trina's right to identify Iran. I think also in the historical context, to go back slightly to the first question, you know, nation state targeting of critical infrastructure. Um, it's a story that you can't tell without mentioning Russia and it long predates designs on the sovereignty of Ukraine. And by that, I mean Crimea as well as the 2022 uh, invasion. I think she's right to bring out the... Um, the ambiguity in all of this. I mean, when you discover an intrusion uh, on a critical, a nation state intrusion on a critical uh, um, national infrastructure uh, facility, uh, you can't ask it why it's there because it's a piece of code. And you can't ask the people who put it there because they're nation state actors from a hostile nation. So you don't know um, unless it's actually actively disrupting uh, the functioning of the network, which by definition, in some of these cases, it's not. Uh, you don't know whether it's there as a precursor to a um, uh, uh, or as a precursor to an attack. You don't know if it's there, as Katrina is saying, is effectively a diplomatic bit of aggression and warning. You don't know if it's there for espionage purposes uh, and, and, and so on. So there's an awful lot that you don't know. Um, I think that, you know, when we look at the um, evolution of cyber conflict and contestation in this period. Um, I mean, rightly, understandably, we're focused on Russia and uh, Ukraine in 2022. But the fact that um, you know two sovereign states uh, ceased diplomatic relations over a series of cyber incidents, I'm talking about Iran and Albania, Albania severing diplomatic relations with Iran over a series of what appeared to be retaliatory uh, cyber attacks that 
seem to cause the Albanian government great difficulty because of um, uh, and the, the cause of it appears to have been um, Iran's um, unhappiness at um, uh, some of Albania's support for Israel. Uh, I think you are looking at something that's really quite interesting and quite significant. Um, a set of cyber operations that were designed from one hostile state deliberately to cripple the functioning of government of a, of a NATO member um and uh the severing of diplomatic relations and also i think not least because there were different russia related problems in montenegro uh cyber come uh, in in government cyber coming to a region of the world that um sadly in the past has been very volatile um uh but has hitherto not really featured in our calculations about cyber conflict so you know if you're talking about the western balkans and southeast southeast europe in general i think again and you know you see this when you talk to the governments there Two years ago, and I mean two years ago, governments in the Western Balkans who have plenty to worry about, let's face it, and they've had plenty to worry about for decades, uh, have not been talking about cyber as a um, as a strategic risk to manage. They absolutely are now. And another topic that continues to make headlines globally is the issue of ransomware. Uh, recent figures from the US Treasury uh, suggest that financial institutions observed nearly $1.2 billion in costs associated with ransomware attacks in 2021 um, and it's become such an issue that governments globally are um, taking steps to to crack down on these gangs. Kieran is there anything more that governments should be doing in your view to crack down on this type of extortion uh, and how should organizations respond when faced with these types of threats? Well I'm guided by Katrina's response to the first question is it's important to figure out what question we're answering because what governments and companies are doing about it are two completely different things. Um, I think there's a lot of public policy that could be examined here that isn't being. Um, I think a lot of the discussions that have been had on ransomware to date in governmental circles have been operational. And that's necessary. I and mean, you can send Cyber Command after some of these gangs. And actually, I'm quite pleased that offensive cyber forces have been uh set after these people as they have in the US and Australia and so forth, uh, you can try to do your bit to curtail the transfer of cryptocurrency, um, which fuels so much of it, although crypto seems to be doing a good enough job of destroying itself in 2022, uh, an area slightly beyond my area of expertise, but but still. But when you look at um, what's happening, um, you have uh, the large-scale transfer of money from Western companies to criminals, mostly based out of Russia, um, three-quarters of the last reliable estimate I saw, three-quarters of the money goes to Russia. And for me, a lot of that cannot be an operational problem. It's essentially a public policy problem. Now, the easy thing to do is say, well, let's call for a ban on ransomware and the easy thing, uh, ban on ransom payments. And the easy way to respond to that is that would never work. But if you look at something like, um, and Katrina's already mentioned Colonial Pipeline, who paid, if you look at something like JBS Meats, um, which was another big ransom payment around the same period in 2021, it's really interesting if you look at the statement they made. Um, it's public, it's on it's on the website, and they paid $11 million to one of the Russian ransomware groups. That's a lot of money that will incentivize further crime. And they're perfectly, it's perfectly lawful, but look at the statement they made. They said, we're pretty sure we haven't lost any data and our systems have been operating broadly fine, but as a precaution to prevent, and I quote, potential harm, we're going to pay $11 million. Now, to me, that is the low point of our collective posture towards ransom payments. It just says, look, nobody kind of understands this. Let's just pay them off always and everywhere. So let's start there, right? And let's think about how do we disincent? We have to disincentivize stuff like that happening. Now, maybe you can ban it, maybe you can't. Uh, maybe you could look at the way insurance policies are functioning and whether they're incentivizing, maybe you can't. Uh, maybe you could publish more data about the reliability um, of the recovery. Um, in other words, the effectiveness of ransom payment, because there's this narrative going around that, you know, it's kind of a magic solution and you get your stuff back. Well, maybe it's not actually true in a lot of cases. Um, again, people don't often understand the difference between being extorted for availability of a system uh, where you can, you know, literally buy a key which might let you back in versus as happened in Australia when they didn't pay um, and good on them, uh, where they said, we're going to publish all your data. 
um, if you don't pay us. Well, those are two completely different considerations, but they're just lumped into this whole thing about, you know, let's, um, let, you know, we can we can pay our way out of it. So we need to look at this whole ecosystem, um, this whole pro-criminal narrative that has led far too many people far too often to say you should pay. There's no easy answers, but point to me a government that has done a serious piece of policy analysis that they put out there in the public domain that says, here are the, here are the legislative uh, corporate governance, social informational levers that a society can use to reduce this problem. I don't think any government has done it. Uh, in terms of what a company can do, I think they can do probably three things. One is to, you know, do the basics of strengthening network uh, uh, defense so to reduce the risk of intrusion. Secondly, exercise what you do. So um, the main thing is, can you keep going if you lose availability? Um, because, you know, if it is about availability and you can't function, then you're more likely to be desperate enough to pay. Uh, if if you can keep going at some level of performance for some period of time, then you're much more likely not to uh, have to pay and much more likely not to suffer real uh, damage. And then the third thing is learn a bit more about it. Um, and again, that's partly due to the, that's partly a, a uh, a plea for more exercising, but it's not just that. So understand the difference, you know, as many leading organizations don't seem to between extortion based on locking you out of your network and stealing your data and threatening to publish it. Um, because you'll have a different dynamic, a different approach. Learn who you might call to, you know, what to get support, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the three things organizations could do. Katrina, anything to add on that? Watching it here um, in the US, the Biden administration has really tried and the numbers don't change much. I think sometimes their analysis of whether it's going up or down is also quite complex to, to, to pass. Um, they've got their national cyber strategy coming out this month and probably next month. And I'm told that will have an objective dedicated to, to ransomware. Um, what that looks like, I, I think it's about um, trying to disrupt our Virtual currencies, the, the way the payments are made, getting getting them back, FBI, hackbacks, all, all those sorts of things, making exchanges, crypto exchanges more uh, accountable, responsible. And the other thing that, I mean, everyone still tells me is we just need more reporting on what the actual numbers are. And the US has brought in two different types of ways to make reporting um, uh, required. Uh, so they are moving from a voluntary framework, companies, of course, have not wanted to reveal this to one where they have to. So the um, Securities Exchange Commission, they're requiring reporting. Um, there's a law that now says that if you are subject to um, an incident, you need to report that to CISA. Uh, that's not been implemented yet, but it will come. It's very complicated to work out how they'll implement it. But the point is, it's, it's a shift that will mean that companies have to reckon with themselves and say something about what is happening to them and what they're doing and any ransom payment they might be making. Um, you know, there's a really long conversation about how, do you shame the companies that are that are paying or do you, what do you actually do to reduce ransom payments, even if at an ecosystem-wide level it works? And certainly I think we're seeing schools and hospitals um, in the US really get hit. I mean, there's a report out, I think, that 45 school districts were hit last year. There was um, sick kids just got hit. And that ransomware group said, uh, we're sorry, our partner did it. And they actually gave back the decryption key. But that's really, really rare. And even then, sick kids don't quite know what to do with the key, whether whether that will decrypt anything, whether to trust it, whether, that, whether they'll get what they need to get. Um, and the other one is universities. You know, 44 universities, I think, got hit. Um, I went to a counterintelligence briefing the other day saying all universities should please establish their own um, insider threat programs. It's it's really complicated territory and that relationship between the private sector and the government is evolving and by no means settled. And it's also very contested from each part. I, I think the best insight I ever got was um, someone saying, we just hope we can do enough for critical infrastructure ransomware attacks to go down by saying we'll we'll take that very seriously and respond. But everything else becomes to some extent low-hanging fruit. And you know, schools and hospitals aren't getting the support they need. I've spoken to schools who, you know, their insurance premiums have, have doubled. Um, it, a lot of hope is being placed on insurers to set minimum standards that will make the whole um, 
ecosystem more resilient, but you've also got insurers at very top level saying cyber is becoming uninsurable. You've got Lloyd's saying if there's any nation state um, association, there should be an exemption. Well, we're hearing more and more that all ransomware has a nation state link. So to some extent, that's maybe insurers saying, don't look at us. Um, I think governments are looking at insurers to say set minimum standards will use you. Um, and, and it's all just a very voluntary, fuzzy world right now that is that is not, um, you know, the, the, the numbers that we do know about show remarkable consistency. Thank you, Katrina. Um, another topic that uh, we're speaking with uh, journalists a lot more about is the issue of quantum computing and its potential ability to crack encrypted data. Many people believe that um, already stolen data is being stored in the hope that advances in quantum computing will eventually allow thieves to decrypt the information. Um, so it's um, not a very well-known subject um, at the moment. Um, Katrina, Kieran, I don't know how much you know about the topic um, and the potential steps that are being taken to address the risk posed by quantum computers in the coming years. Um, Katrina, Kieran, I don't know who wants to go first on that one. I, I, I write quite a bit about it, but I suspect Kieran's um, known about it for decades before <laughs> me a journalist started writing about it. You, you, you please go. I'll uh, furiously work out what I might say. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this is something the Biden administration is now all over. Um, in January, they put out a requirement for national security agencies to come up with a plan to transfer to what is called very the NSA, the National Security Agency, has said it'll take something like 20 years just to make that migration. And it all comes down to this wonderful new world we're living in of, of algorithms. Um, NIST, the, um, the, the scientific standards body in the US, conducted a six-year competition to find the winning algorithm that can withstand quantum, uh, something that doesn't exist yet, but um, conceptually exists. And um, just last year, four algorithms won. It was quite an interesting, for a very slow burning competition, it became quite juicy because some of the algorithms fell away in the last um, few months. Um, but, but they got four. These algorithms, the theory is you, you standardize them um, and then they'll be usable in 2024. But if they do get cracked, they can be um, replaced or it, some of them maybe could be improved to become uh, more efficient. But the idea is that all encryption will have to be replaced with this. There's a huge economy, or small, small but growing economy, growing up around this. Though I do hear from PRs certainly about it a lot. And when I speak to um, some of the um, scientific experts, let's say at DARPA, the US agency, they're really good at cautioning that um, this breakthrough may not come. Um, Rob Joyce um, at the NSA, he said it will come. It, it's a question of, of when. Um, not if he, he doesn't think it's likely that it will never come. But you know, the timeline is complex. The Biden administration in May said the entire economy, not just national security um, services, should switch. And um, they've they've given a 2035 deadline for that. I think this, the estimate is there are 20 billion devices around the world that need to upgrade. Um, the Pentagon's in on it, DOD's now getting some contracts. So there, there are a lot of companies in this space that are coming up with savvy ways to get market share and it's because of these requirements becoming a place where if you're in it you can um, secure customers as to when it happens um, when that risk happens the argument is it doesn't matter when it happens because so much data is stockpiled that the day it happens you'll lose everything um, it, it does feel like something that is working with a fair bit of scaremongering but I am assured Kieran you, you tell us <laughs> that it that it that it matters and um, there is a need for transition. Well, that was, I mean, that was public service broadcasting at its best. I mean, it was a brilliant explanation. So I'm glad this is being recorded. Um, I have very little to add other than given that you asked me at the end, Katrina, you know, would I affirm the assessment that this is a massive deal that uh, I, I, absolutely. And I think um, there's parts of it that are conceptually very scary and then, you know, parts of it that are historically reassuring. Um, and then there's a, um, there's something happening right now which could be quite interesting in that. So the conceptually scary bit is, as Katrina says, I mean, it does break all known forms of encryption. I mean, essentially encryption and, you know, I'm not deeply technical, but um, so I'm sure you could pick holes with this. But for general purposes, you know, um, the way modern encryption works 
is by incredibly complicated voluminous maths that just takes too much computing power to break and quantum computing can break it and the mass already is there to show that that's how it would work but it's a bit like cold fusion you know the science has been there we know how cold fusion can work we just don't have enough power to do it essentially um and so um uh, quantum computing has been if you like a race to get the engineering power and the computing power uh, done in a manageable way that, that can do this and then it is scary because it breaks everything so um and uh um the uh, historically sort of reassuring bit is that whilst, you know, this is an historical pattern on steroids um, because of the sheer power of quantum computing, you know, we've been through this type of thing before. You know, there's a big innovation in communications technology or in computing or uh, in computation and so forth. Um, and the security sort of catches up with it. And as long as you sort of, so, you know, just as people are developing quantum uh, computing capabilities, they're developing, as Katrina said, in uh, great, um, really helpfully, the sort of US government process, they're trying to develop quantum resistant cryptography. Of course, the lacuna in that, as you both alluded to, is the historic data that isn't being um, applied with quantum resistant cryptography and therefore could be broken in the, in, in, in the future. So it's a huge deal and who gets, um, two things matter. Um, one is, you know, who gets there first in terms of usable quantum computing? And secondly, what is the gap, if any, between the development of you know, serious quantum computing capabilities and quantum uh, resistant um, cryptography? What's happening at the minute, and you know, you can, if you Google um, uh, quantum RSA, for example, you'll find a number of interesting articles today, is that a couple of previously unknown, certainly to me and most uh, other people, uh, Chinese researchers have published a paper, uh, in effect, saying that they can break RSA. So, you know, one of the main contemporary bits, they can break RSA using far fewer qubits than um, previously needed. So at the moment, to break RSA in theory, you need an unattainable amount of computing power. Uh, and they're saying you can do it far more easily. Now they're saying they're saying in this paper, here's how you do it. They haven't built it and they haven't done it. And uh, when, if you read a blog, a very short and accessible blog by Professor Bruce Schneier of Harvard, uh, where he says, most of the paper is over my head. And at the point when you read Bruce Schneier saying most of the paper is over my head, you just give up because it was over his head then, you know, what hope is there for the uh, for the rest of us? Uh, so the first line of, for example, the Financial Times, and this says, computer security experts were struggling this week to assess a startling claim by Chinese researchers. They find a way to make the break the most fo common form of online encryption. I think that's literally where we are right now on this. Um, and I think, um, you know, I had a number of calls, I'm sure, Katrina, you've been through the same process as well, and other outlets have had this as well. You know, when this paper came out and sort of, you know, social media went a bit mad about it, and it's literally, you know, that social media catchphrase, is huge if true. This is actually huge if true, rather than a joke. Um, uh, the question is, you know, um, uh, lots of media outlets were saying, you know, is this, this seems so out of left field that is this actually serious and credible and the, the fact the fact is no one knows you would think something of the sensitivity come out of somewhere like china would probably have been classified and managed and all of that uh so nobody knows um i'm not uh, well i am adding to the speculation by discussing it but i'm not i'm trying not to add to the speculation in any direction because i have no idea whether or not this is credible but the fact this sort of thing can just emerge from nowhere i think validates katrina's point that you know this is a massive deal so you know if somebody from out of nowhere came up with some way of more easily breaking um uh existing encryption using quantum computing yeah that's a massive deal uh so and to to conclude because i've gone on far too long but um, to pick up something Katrina said at the start, you know, the Biden administration is all over this. I think this illustrates some of the difficulty of contemporary cybersecurity, because if you take what we've been talking about for the last 34 minutes and you know, we've gone from 2021 poxy ransomware attacks that were crippling healthcare systems, which were based on Windows 7 stuff. Right. And now we're going through to this. OK. And I remember, you know, um, you know, there's brilliant colleagues at CISA in the US were issuing in consecutive weeks, you know, guidance about the former and the latter. And one is just like, can you do stuff that, that I'm sorry, I know it's difficult, but can you do uh, organizationally, but can you do stuff that you should have been doing 10 years ago? And also we've got this incomprehensibly baffling mathematical thing that could change the world. Oh, could you do something about that too? I think that's one of the challenges of where we are right now in cybersecurity, which makes things really hard for organizations, which, of course, do not primarily exist to serve cybersecurity. They exist to do healthcare, food production, professional services, whatever it may be. 
Thank you very much. Uh, a quick reminder to viewers that you can use the Q&A function at any time to ask questions of Katrina and Kieran. Uh, so the next topic, um, something that has also uh, built up a lot of column inches over the past few years, is the issue of supply chain security. The UK NCSC recently issued fresh guidance following a rise in these types of attacks. Uh, this follows significant increase in cyber attacks resulting from vulnerabilities within supply chains. Back in 2020, we saw the SolarWinds attack, which was one of the biggest breaches of the century. Uh, it triggered a much larger supply chain incident that affected thousands of organizations, including the US government. So the question for Katrina and Kieran, uh, are organizations starting to prioritize supply chain security or given the NCSC's recent guidance, perhaps the issue is not being given the prioritization or budgets that are needed. Kieran, do you want to kick off on that one? Well, again, look, let's have some sympathy with the organizations. You know, you tell them lots of things about how they can secure themselves and what they need to do. And then, of course, um, the organization exists in an island. And, you know, one of a really interesting example for me, even if quite a mundane one, was at the end of 2021, um, there's a company in the north of England, I think it's based in Preston, um, which... I mean, essentially for 150 years, all it's done is supply spar in the north of England. And it's basically spar uh, shops, 300 of, or 600 of them, uh, principal supplier for virtually everything. And it got ransomware and spar in the north of England closed down for a couple of days. Um, so, you know, you can see that sort of um, uh, dependency. Um, the second thing is then if you move to more complicated organisations, you know, um, and I you know, used to, even in government, we I was on the board of several uh, complicated government organizations. Ask an organization of the size of GCHQ or the cabinet office, you know, uh, um, map your supply chain. It's almost impossible um, in a complicated modern um, uh, economy. So, you know, let's again have some sympathy with rather than just lecture people, have some sympathy with the um, 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 with the people who have to operate this stuff on limited budgets whilst doing whilst doing something else. Um, so what do you do? Um, I think, you know, uh, I think um, SolarWinds, albeit, you know, as an espionage operation, I think showed to the world um, some of the uh, key vulnerabilities, but we, we, we'd had this in defence contracts and, 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 and so on. I think there are broadly two imperfect things you can do. One is try to, again, as always, sort of regulate for outcomes. What I mean by that is, look, um, if you can't understand everything about your supply chain, because you probably can't, at least understand how your critical functions work, because then that directs you to bits of your supply chain that you can't afford to um, that, 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 that you can't afford to lose. Um, so, and then go to those bits um, um, and figure out whether you need to tighten uh, controls or build resilience or have alternatives. So for example, if you take, um, and it's now public, if you take what happened to in 2019 in, um, uh, there was a ransomware attack on a Brussels-based uh, uh, criminal forensics firm um, called Eurofins. And it turned out that Eurofin supplied criminal forensics to over 60% of the police forces in England and Wales, 60% of, of English and Welsh uh, criminal forensics capability. The obvious lesson from the Home Office there, which they instantly took, was we shouldn't have anybody doing more than half of criminal forensics capability because what if something happens to them? So it's just having an exercise that, you know, figures out things like that. And then the second part is, yeah, you can't map out your entire supply chain, but you can map out some of it. And some of it is obviously just strikingly important because you've got a deep commercial partnership that goes back years with company X and so forth. Well, actually have a look at the contracts, have a look at the way in which it works and try and incentivize better cybersecurity um, and, and through it. Uh, but don't ignore it. Katrina, anything to add on that? I, I think in terms of the sort of cybersecurity, um, supply chain. There's more focus on it, but clearly more coming. Um, the US is very keen on the software bill of materials that's breaking down what actually the ingredients are in your in your products and working out where they've come from, wh what might be beaconing back to where. Um, and I think with the 
uh, there's, there's a new um, China Select Committee in the House, and despite um, sort of, um, uh, political discourse going on in the US, that's likely to focus more on supply chain issues for cybersecurity this year. Um, the other thing that's been pointed out to me is that a lot of this comes down to really encouraging designers of new code to make sure they're, they're doing that um, as well as possible with cybersecurity in mind, but the, the old um, the things people trip up on are old legacy code, and that's and that's um, much harder to deal with. So that supply chain cybersecurity vulnerability is um, is is gaining more attention, but I don't I don't think it's being resolved yet. We've got a question in from a uh, a viewer about the topic of artificial intelligence. Um, so we've seen a huge amount of media coverage on generative AI, things like ChatGPT, uh, clearly very early days for things like ChatGPT. But I don't know if either of you have heard anything um, about the potential security implications for these types of developments. Could criminals perhaps use things like ChatGPT to create phishing emails, uh, generate code? Um, any views on the impact generally of artificial intelligence on the Threat landscape. Either of you. Take your mute button off, Kieran. All right, you went first last time. Um, so um, on um again, uh there's there's sort of two questions there. There's a sort of chat GBD, you know, informational AI versus all the things. And I think that distinction again is important. These details matter. Um, you know, um, there's a bit of me that slightly wants to go off and rant about the way we talk about AI. Um, my um uh, favorite uh, quotation on this is by a man called Professor Michael Sulmeyer, who was um he ran the Belfast Center at Harvard and has since become an advisor to various um you know parts of the US national security community. And when he says uh, uh, we were talking about AI and cybersecurity. He said, "Yes, when someone says to me AI, I say, oh, you mean hard sums.'" Um, now, uh, and what we mean by that is in cybersecurity, you know, I actually don't think it's helpful to talk about AI. I think you talk about what the applied use is, because, you know, if you're talking about AI in robotics, if you're talking about AI in telemedicine, if you're talking about AI in transport with autonomous vehicles, that's completely different from chat GPT. Um, so, um, uh, and I think that um, why do we not have... Um, you know, if I look out the window here at a road nearby, why do we not have driverless cars on it? Is it because the technology is not yet there? No, we know it. We've all seen the videos. Some of us may have seen it in person. Uh, it's because we haven't found a security and safety model. That means that um, there's any point in having a driverless car because at the minute, you know, so much could go wrong, not least with effectively a phone connection. You know, you're asking people to get in a car run by a phone connection. We all lose connectivity all the time. So basically, the solution to that is have the driver sober and on alert and in the driver's seat ready to take over, which kind of means what's the point and not reading anything, as, which kind of makes what's the point in having a driverless car. But the reason I use that example is that it shows you that you don't talk about cyber in isolation. Here you talk about you talk about what you're using this stuff for, and you have a series of you know securities and safety regulations and practices around it to make it to make it safe. Um, and I think that you know that will be as different in each case. There will be no common cyber problem with AI. It'll depend on what you're using it for. You know, that, so that's what you need to figure out for transport. You need to figure out something else for telemedicine. You need to figure out something else for robotics and and uh, and all the rest of it. In terms of ChatGPT, I mean, I'm sure there are um, <clears throat> there are ways in which, but again, I don't think Chat. You know, I'm, I haven't I haven't asked uh, ChatGPT to write me a. Trojan or write, write me some malicious software and have no intention of doing so, not least because I'm not a lawyer and I suspect it's illegal. Um, but um, uh, or at least using it would be illegal. Um, but I think, you know, again, there is already, um, you know, the use of machine learning um, in both sides of the cyber attack battle. Um, there is extensive use of machine learning in cyber defense. And one can assume that there's extensive use of machine learning in offense, whether it's, you know, nation state or uh, or or nefarious. So I don't think we're talking about anything any, anything new here. So I think we need to be really, really specific when we're talking about AI and cybersecurity. Um, Katrina, anything to add on the subject of AI? Most of the AI stuff I look at is on um, the development of algorithmic warfare and to what extent any kind of commander wants to trust um, 
targeting decisions made automatically over the decision of, a, of an individual and to what extent the system will ever accept that. Um, so I think that's at the very beginning stages and there's already been a huge amount of friction about who's prepared to work on that and who isn't um, and, and what kind of accuracy you can get. So I, I think there's now a push for that, but it's, it's you know, that doesn't answer the question at all. Um, the other thing is that there are AI cybersecurity companies. The, the other claim that's been made in a positive way uh, is that when it comes to, let's say, insurance, which to me feels like a really big piece of cybersecurity that needs unlocking and developing and all the rest of it, um, AI can help um, do the risk assessment on any company that's being insured um, better than filling out a questionnaire saying, have you got your cybersecurity hygiene basics in place? Um, so premiums may go down or off, depending on it. Um, but I think my answers testify that Kieran's quite right, that AI is a multi-spangled um, beast and it's, you know, how, how good is your algorithm? Thanks, Katrina. Uh, we've had another question in about the uh, recession, uh, predictions that a lot of countries globally are going to go into recession this year. Um, and the question uh, relates to what will be the impact of that recession on IT budgets. Um, a lot of the commentators that have said that um, IT budgets will remain stable or indeed grow. A lot of companies will continue to invest in technology. Um, Kieran, your, your uh, experience of, of previous um, recessions, did it have a huge impact on, on IT budgets? And do you think um, cybersecurity budgets will be impacted at all? I think it'll be mixed. Um, I don't have any quantitative evidence to draw on, which did. Others may do, um, would like to see it. Uh, so I'm afraid uh, I will caveat everything by saying this is relying on anecdote. And I hear both sides in equal measure. Um, and it probably depends on how, you know, um, you know, of course, you know, it's what some economists will always tell you. You don't really have you don't really have national economies. I mean, you do, but there are a bunch of individual organizations trying to do their own thing. And some of them are very recession um, proof and some of them are very much not recession proof and in uh, in sectors that are going to really struggle and in companies that are not in a great position going into a recession, then. You know why would cyber budgets, cybersecurity budgets, let alone IT? I mean, you can possibly see why some IT budgets might be um, uh, spared a little bit in terms of you know investing in the future. But making the case for security gets gets harder, gets a lot harder. And some, you know, I talked to on parts of various CISO networks and chief information security officer networks, and some of them are struggling to get heard now in a way that they weren't, you know, a couple of years um, ago. Uh, you know, certainly when everything went online, they were having lots of attention. And now that, you know, things are relatively back to normal, uh, they're struggling. On the other hand, you have companies, particularly in the tech sector itself, who, you know, know it's all about, you know, it's all about innovating securely and they just, they just can't cut it. So I think it'll be very patchy. If I had to call it, I would say that, you know, watch the more traditional sectors, you know, watch the sectors that aren't always, you know, automatically high tech, um, because uh, they're probably, you know, but but are still important in, in infrastructure. So, you know, food logistics and things like that, you know, retail and, and so on, because uh, they could, um, uh, they, they uh, you know, so, so some of those areas um, could, could struggle a bit. Karina, anything to add on that? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been speaking to investors who insist, of course, that cybersecurity budgets are going to go up. I mean, that's where they're putting their their money that's what they want to see succeed um there's a mckinsey report that folks are talking about um that that puts the market at something like 150 billion dollars and and says the market will go up to 200 billion dollars for 2024 that's in cybersecurity. so the sense that companies are going to have to keep spending um the theory that's been shown to me is is that it budgets are likely to be flat or even go down but the hope among very interested stakeholders I speak to is that cybersecurity is a proportion of IT um, will continue to um, go up. McKinsey is suggesting it'll go up 13% year on year to 2025. Um, there are certain areas that are obviously developing. The main ones folks talk to me about are cloud data, AI analytics, and zero trust. That's where you might see some growth. But you know, new companies, when you look at the number of startups, that, that number is um, tailing off, you're seeing more M&As. I think that trend might be likely to continue. Um, and, and when you 
speak to people in a bit more of a relaxed setting, I think they expect a lot more competition um, between vendors, a lot more free pilots, um, a lot more bang for your buck type things. And maybe CISO, as Kieran's saying, um, they might have got their budgets locked in earlier on last year, um, but they'll have to compete a lot more for, for money and um, not be a scattergun about who they're asking to work for them. I think it's been quite overwhelming, you know, the number of companies in the market. Um, so I, I've certainly heard it both ways, and it's very hard for me to judge. I do not have my money in the market, um, but it sounds to me like it's certainly going to get rougher. Thanks, Katrina. Um, on the subject of, of budgets, a lot of people got on the call today uh, work in marketing and PR roles within security companies. So we've got a couple of polls for you to answer. Hopefully on the screen now, you should be able to see two questions. Um, so if you work for a security vendor, what changes do you expect in your 2023 marketing and PR budget? Significantly higher, slightly higher, same as last year, slightly lower or significantly lower. And the second question, again, if you work for a security vendor, how important do you believe brand awareness is for your firm during periods of recession? Um, I'll Give you a few seconds to answer that quote, those questions. Completely anonymous, I should add. And we can't vote. You can't vote, I'm afraid, Karen. I do agree with Christine, uh, with um, Katrina, sorry. Uh, you know, there's an element of how can this not impact somebody? <laughs> you know. Okay, so I'm going to end the poll now. So the first question, um, impact on this year's budgets. Um, most responses the same as last year, which is, I guess, fairly good news. Um, stagnant budget, um, only 25% of people have said it'd be slightly lower. Um, and encouragingly, um, a total of 26% said slightly higher or significantly higher, which is great news. Um, on the topic of brand awareness, um, another great result, 75% said um, uh, with regards to the importance of brand awareness um, for your firm during periods of recession, um, great to see that you want to continue to uh, raise brand awareness. Um, so that's really good to hear. Um, moving on to our last question, we've got eight minutes left. Um, continue to get your questions in if you have anything for Katrina and Kieran. Um, but the last question we got for today, um, I will turn to Katrina. Um, as I said, a lot of people on the call today are uh, working PR and marketing roles within security firms. Um, so it'd be great to get your view, Katrina, um, on the type of security-related insight that helps to inform your articles. Um, how best should we be pitching to you? Uh, and what type of spokespeople are you looking to speak with? Um, and what is the kind of the golden recipe when it comes to the type of comments that, that get your attention? I'm probably useless. I feel like, you know, a huge apology. I'm sure I don't get back to um, as many emails as people would like. And I'm always slightly baffled by outreaches from um, companies and PR companies because the what, what, it, what it feels like they want is so different from what I'm interested in. And I, I, I often don't quite know how to respond. So I'm sorry to anyone who's ever contacted me and um, I've been useless. I, I think as a journalist, the agenda must be so different. I can't, I can't even really speak to what a, a PR agenda is. Um, but from my perspective, um, I am really eager to find out what's actually going on um, Journalism is mostly about friction. It's about what one group wants and what another group wants, and they're not in alignment, and um, really difficult problems, and finding out, you know, quote unquote, the, the truth of it. So, speaking to senior decision makers, people with um, very significant insight, is always incredibly useful. I, I don't write on a beat where I am turning over stories and need a quote to fit into it. Um, 
So I think some of the outreach I receive is, is probably, a bit, well, maybe it's useful for some people who, who do that. But I think mostly I'm really eager to know about um, players in the space, um, experts, any chance to speak to a CEO. I think, you know, I'd be foolish to turn that down because that's someone in charge of a company making decisions about other people's money, making decisions about what they see, you know, the landscape as. I don't write about products specifically, but I do write about trends and the intersection between policy, national security, and increasingly, I think I should write about, you know, the marketplace. There's obviously a lot of money and that makes a huge difference um, to the direction of things and you know, to a certain extent lobbying. So when someone is kind enough to reach out to me, I'm really eager to um, have a wide ranging conversation with specifics and um, careful insight. I'm probably not going to be the person who would write on um, uh, a new report unless it was you know, very nicely being offered to me to write about on my own and give me quite a bit of time to get my head around it, um, especially for journalists who have so much on. When something does come to me pre-packaged, I really like to have a little bit of time, which is a really naughty request, um, and, and to have it just for me. And, and then that means that I can see if I can tell a story around it or find someone who's affected by something or, um, you know, com combine a human side with a data side, with a money side, with a policy side, with a, you know, all, all the different things that make a, a real event um, meaningful. That to me feels like my job, that context, as, as well as of course new things, um, because that's news. And so anyone who can offer, um, the, the time with the decision maker or someone who's been in government before and is prepared to talk to me about that and maybe off record. You know, those off record conversations are, are very helpful. I, I tend not to see very many press releases um, or even have the time to get back. Um, I, don't, I don't know how helpful that is. And I'm, um, I'm, I'm very aware that their aims are, are different and conclude again with my apology. <sighs> Thank you, Gina. That's really useful. Um, Kira, perhaps a final thought. If anyone has a specific follow-up on that, I'm really open to it. And if anyone needs my attention on something ever, the best thing is to put my name in the subject line because then I know it's not um, uh, it, it's not a blank. It, it's not a formatted, templated um, press release, which honestly I often don't open. That's great, great advice. Um, Kieran, as someone who is uh, no doubt inundated with requests for comment from journalists um, and is widely quoted, when it comes to giving uh, a comment to a journalist, um, what are the type of factors that, that you try to include? How do you make sure that your your quote is, is worthwhile and um, gets into stories? Um, that's a good question I've not really thought about um, before. I think uh, in terms of, um, I mean, it's a lot of it is down to the journalists. You know, they they scope and craft the story. I mean, if you're talking about, you know, things that are in print rather than broadcast, obviously, where, you know, um, even then it depends on the interviewer. Um, but I, um, I suppose you want to try to have something distinctive and useful to say. So, um, you know, very often I sometimes have a group of, friends who will you know who I know are looking out for me who will say that like, you're just you're just saying too much and it's too vanilla and everybody else is saying it so you know ration it a bit um to things that are things that you genuinely have some uh, insight into that other you know, that not that many other people um have and I suppose over time you know the journalists that I would respect the most um and rate the most sort of find that and they say well you know they um, and so you know they won't just ask me to come up with something to that they could get, you know, a hundred different people to confirm and fill out some uh, space, but they actually think, well, actually, this is something you might um, you might know something uh, about. So I suppose my criteria is: is there something you know, useful? Uh, as a former government official, you know, I have all sorts of obligations which I take really seriously about, you know, not revisiting not just things that are covered by the Official Secrets Act, which is a matter of criminal law, but you know, discussions, private discussions with politicians. I think you need to, in the past, need to remain private and 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 and, and so on. So try not to, you know, um, as someone at a university, I will try and help genuine academic researchers you know look at serious um subjects 
Um, but in terms of current sort of issues, it's essentially, is there something here? Is there some insight or piece of knowledge that I have that is not generally available, but it's in the public interest to disclose um, uh, or to make known, I think is what I try to do. Thanks, Kieran. Unfortunately, we've reached the top of the hour. Some great insight and advice from Katrina and Kieran. Thank you very much to both of you for joining us today. Um, thanks very much for everyone who, who's dialed in. I will just conclude it by saying I wish you all a very happy and healthy 2023. For more information about Babel and other episodes of this podcast, head to www.babelpr.com forward slash podcasts.